People are always asking me, Blaine, tell me why you run all the time. My response is always the same. I run because I'm a runner. Well, I haven't always been a runner. A couple years ago, I decided I'd give it a try. So I did what I saw other runners do. I joined the track team. I quickly learned that just being on the track team doesn't make you a runner. I get out there and run my heart out, but I always seem to fear. Running straight isn't as easy as it looks. I was about to give up when I finally realized what was different about me. I was the only one wearing a watch. That's why I couldn't run. The watch was weighing me down. Though it was big and weighed a ton, I was kind of attached to my watch. Literally, couldn't get it off. I have tried before. I tried to pull it off, tear it off, cut it off. I tried many things. I finally just got used to it. I mean, yeah, it hindered my running, but people thought it was cool. I actually made friends because of it. We all have crossroads in life. This was mine. I realized I had a choice. Get rid of the watch somehow, or get out of the race. At that moment, I made the decision. I chose to become a runner. Right then, I heard somebody say, do you want me to take the watch off? This guy was standing next to me, kind of freaked me out. I guess he knew what was going on. I told him I wanted to be a runner, but couldn't do it with my watch. He asked me again, do you want me to take off the watch? I said, yes. He smiled and somehow managed to take it right off. My life since then has been all about running. I mean, I'm running now in a way I never thought I could before. I still stumble at times, but I never fall. I have a passion for running I never dreamed I would have. I owe a lot to that guy who freed me from my watch or shackles or whatever you want to call it. I sometimes wonder what he did with my watch. I do know this, what he did set me free. My name is Blaine and I'm a runner. When you're dealing with topics like sin and forgiveness and salvation, it's sometimes difficult to find a video that portrays the biblical picture of how those issues interconnect. Notice that the man who removed Blaine's watch, which represented sin, didn't forgive him for being shackled to it. He wasn't angry with Blaine. He didn't require any sort of sacrifice or payment for removing the watch. He simply asked, do you want to be rid of that? 
Do you want things to be different? It reminded me of the story in the Gospels where Jesus encountered a man who had been sick for more than 30 years, and Jesus simply asked him, do you want to be well? You see, sin is a big problem in our lives. Blaine's story was a quirky and tangible way to represent that intangible reality. But it's a reality nonetheless. Having sin in your heart is like having cancer in your body. And when you have cancer, you don't go to the doctor to get forgiven. You go to the doctor to get healed. When it comes to sin, it should work the same way. We shouldn't go to God to get forgiven. We should go to God to get healed. He doesn't want to forgive us for lugging around the burdensome watch. He wants to take it off. Now the whole reason why forgiveness has come into play in this whole thing is because when Adam and Eve dove headlong into sin, they immediately became afraid of God. They became distrustful. They unwittingly bought into the lies of the devil and believed that God was somehow angry with them, out to get them, ready to hurt them. So God has had to spend an awful lot of time convincing us that he forgives us so we'll be willing to approach him with our problem. Because we have this problem whether God forgives us or not. And that's what we see in our scripture reading for today. Let's take just a moment and recap the story of the Israelites up to this point. I hope you've been following along in the readathon, a chapter a day. And if you have been, you've read all of this recently. But for those who haven't, let's have a quick recap of the events that have led the Israelites to this moment on the border of the Promised Land. They were freed by God from slavery in Egypt, and in the process, they watched God work many miracles, including the parting of the Red Sea, so they could escape Pharaoh and his army. Then they were brought to Mount Sinai and inaugurated as the nation of God's special people. They were given both moral and civil laws, as well as instructions for building God a special dwelling place, not only so he could live among them, but so he could journey with them as well. By this time, they've been in the wilderness for more than a year with God. During that time, they've watched him miraculously provide for them, day in and day out, all their needs by bringing water out of rocks for them, sending fresh bread from heaven each day, even sending quail into the camp when they wanted meat. They've witnessed his physical presence with them as he led them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. This has been their experience for more than a year. And finally, they've arrived at the border of Canaan, the promised land. This was the land their miracle-working God had promised to give to them. He was just going to give it to them. They weren't even going to have to work for it. 
God had promised to send his angel ahead of them or work through the forces of nature to drive out the inhabitants of the land little by little so they could take it over in a peaceful way. They weren't to be afraid. They were to trust. But the first thing they did when they got to the edge of the promised land was to get a group of spies together to go in and scout it out. They wanted to get a little glimpse of what they were in for, but they weren't supposed to do that. Now, that's not immediately apparent here in Numbers, but when Moses recounted the story to the Israelites 40 years later, this is what he said. Then I, Moses, said to you, the Israelites, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, well, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. When God's people came to the promised land, they were simply supposed to go in and take it trusting God to show them how. They weren't to be afraid. They were to trust. But it seems they weren't quite ready to rest on the promises. They wanted to scout out the assignment so they could decide the best way to go about it. They wanted to have a little assurance that they were equal to the job. Of course, if you read the description of the land, it seems quite clear why God wouldn't have wanted them to scout things out ahead of time. Because all they saw was a bunch of giants living there. And they lived in fortified cities with huge walls that looked impossible to penetrate. Hmm. Armed giants behind gigantic walls. That didn't look too promising to most of the spies, which is why they hightailed it right back to the camp and said, oh, no way, no how, we're going to get creamed. This story reminds me of one of my all-time favorite Bible verses in Habakkuk. Look around at the nations. Look and be amazed, for I am doing something in your own day something you wouldn't believe even if someone told you about it. This is God's response to Habakkuk, a prophet who was distressed about the state of the world around him. Do you ever feel like that? Distressed about the state of the world around you? All Habakkuk could see was evil and wickedness, and his question was, how long will you be silent, Lord? And in response, God said, I'm not silent. I'm working. Except what I'm doing, you wouldn't believe, even if I told you what it was. You see, that's how God works. In ways we can't even begin to imagine. So when he sees giants in walled cities, he thinks, no problem. He knows how to bring those walls down. With what? Army tanks? Heat-seeking missiles? 
atom bombs? How's he going to bring those walls down? You remember the story of Jericho? Trumpets and what else? Shouting and marching around in circles. That's ridiculous. Who would use that as a military strategy? But that's precisely why they weren't supposed to be bothering themselves with the giants in the promised land. God knew how he was going to deal with them, and so the fear of the people was totally unnecessary and, as we can see, not helpful. The people are so distrustful of God and so afraid of the giants that they immediately rebel. I mean, that's an understatement. They have a total meltdown. They're angry that they've been dragged through the desert to perish in this unwinnable battle. Oh, the drama. And trust me, I have two girls at home. I know something about drama. They even say they'd rather die in the wilderness than enter the promised land. A request that God is eventually going to grant, by the way. And they're ready to appoint a new leader for themselves to take them back to Egypt. God doesn't immediately respond. Moses, Aaron, and two of the spies fall face down in front of the people and beg them to reconsider. Can't you hear them? Hey! Hey! Don't you remember God? This guy who removed you from the grip of the most powerful king in the world? The guy who split the Red Sea in two? Hello! They're begging and pleading with the people to calm down and trust God for two seconds. But instead of getting through to them, their pleas fall on deaf ears as the people decide to stone them instead. And that's when God comes on the scene. Poor God. You really have to feel for him. He is just itching to give these people, his people, this awesome land flowing with milk and honey. But he's also planning to overthrow the giants with weirdo tactics like marching and trumpets. And now it's clear that he's dealing with a nation of people who don't have the slightest inclination whatsoever to listen to him. If he came to them now and said, don't worry about the giants. After you march around in circle for seven days and play this little trumpet tune I'm going to teach you, the walls will fall down and all the giants will run away. They'd be ready to stone him too. What is God going to do with these people? They certainly can't defeat the giants on their own. If they try to go into the land now, God might lose the whole nation. At first, it looks like God has come to his wit's end as he tells Moses to stand aside. I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. But Moses rejects that out of hand reminding God that there are bigger things at stake, such as God's own reputation in the world at large. Instead, Moses asks God to live up to his name and forgive the people. And this is God's reply. 
I do forgive them, just as you said. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt can ever see it. Now don't miss this, because it's important. It's actually stunning how Moses talks to God here. Moses has referenced back to God, God's own self-description in Exodus 34. You remember that, right? How the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Isn't that what you said about yourself, God? So now, forgive these people. And God says, I have forgiven them. But you see, that's not the end of the self-description. Yes, he forgives every kind of sin and rebellion. But that will by no means clear the guilty. The sins of the parents are laid upon the children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations. What that means is God forgives sin all day long, but that doesn't solve our problem. God's forgiveness doesn't change the reality that sin must be addressed and healed if we want to live. How do we know that? How do we know that God's forgiveness doesn't stop sin in its tracks? Well, think of Jesus on the cross. Did he forgive the people who were crucifying him? Did he? He sure did. In fact, he even said the words out loud so everyone would know that those evil people were totally forgiven. But did that stop what they were doing? Did God's forgiveness change their hearts and alter the circumstances? Now, if you didn't really want to take the trouble of turning that many pages in your Bible, you really wouldn't have to look any further than these circumstances in the book of Numbers to realize that God's forgiveness did nothing for these rebellious people. Not only did they continue to disregard God's word and go up into the promised land where they were spanked all the way back to the border by those giants, but the next day, a bunch of them came to carry out a little coup on God's government. Do you remember that story from Numbers chapter 16? Do you remember the names of the ringleaders? Anyone? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And they brought 250 of their closest friends to the tabernacle and demanded that Moses and Aaron step aside so they could rule Israel. And what happened to them? Heard someone say it. Swallowed. That's right. The ground opened up and swallowed them the next day. 
And fire from the Lord came out and consumed the 250 men who had ventured onto priestly territory. By the way, at the moment the ground opened up to swallow Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, had God forgiven them? Careful. Hmm. Would God forgive anyone who had ventured to step out against him in open rebellion? If you think not, go home this afternoon and open your Bible to Numbers 16 and realize that when this little coup was formed, there were not three ringleaders, but four. Four men were at the beginning putting this little coup together, but only three were swallowed up the next day by the earth. What happened to the fourth one? The Bible doesn't tell us. I imagine that at some point he had a change of heart. You see, that's what allows God's saving activity to flood your life. Your change of heart, not God's change of heart. God's heart has never needed to be changed toward you. It has always been full of love and forgiveness for you. If God had forgiven the fourth rebellious ringleader, then he had already forgiven the lot of them. Just as he's forgiven you. God's heart has never needed to be changed toward you. It's your heart that needs to be changed towards him. And if it's not, there's nothing he can do for you. Just like there's nothing a cancer doctor can do for you to heal your cancer if you refuse to go to him for the treatment. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram didn't die because they were unforgiven. They died because they were unrepentant. They died because they decided they would rather die than listen to God. They would rather die than submit to anyone else's authority. God had forgiven them, but they didn't care. And unbelievably, neither did the rest of the Israelites. Because even after witnessing such a horrifying event, the people were back the very next day, continuing to rebel against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. You would have thought something like ground swallowing would have earned God at least 24 hours of respect. But not with these people. These people were hell-bent on having their own way. Sin, at its core, is an attitude of rebellion, an unwillingness to listen, an unwillingness to submit. And that is not a problem you can fix with an assurance of forgiveness. God is a forgiving person, to be sure. He forgives all our sins before we ever ask him to. And because he loves us so much, he wants to save us all. 
But if we are firmly set against him in our hearts and minds, if we're determined to go our own way instead of trusting him, God's forgiveness can't do anything for us. It can't magically soften our hearts or force us to come back to him. God has given us freedom. And even though he freely forgives and pardons all the wrongs we do, often we must still bear the consequences of our poor choices. Hopefully for most of us, the consequences we bear will be temporary ones. God makes the road to hell a very hard and difficult one. One where every step is blocked with tough love and hard knocks and harsh discipline and no stone left unturned. All in the hopes that we might choose to turn around and go home. But if there are those who choose not to, those who follow their stubborn course of rebellion all the way down to eternal loss, I believe, I believe they will bear the ultimate consequences of sin, fully forgiven and loved by their creator. Our God is a forever friend, even to his enemies. So in the end, the wicked will not be lost because they're unforgiven. On the contrary, as God said to Moses in Numbers chapter 14, I've already forgiven a lot of them ages ago. But God's forgiveness doesn't erase the reality of our sin. It doesn't magically dissolve our sin. God's forgiveness never overrides our freedom. And that's why it doesn't negate the consequences of our choices. Sometimes it doesn't seem possible, but it really is as simple as the gospel according to Blaine. You have a problem you can't solve, but the one who can has appeared and said, do you want me to take off the watch? <laughs>